This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton Section 9, Chapter 5, Part 3 The Dramatist We may now pass to the more important of the plays. For some time Bernard Shaw would seem to have been brooding upon the soul of Julius Caesar. There must always be a strong human curiosity about the soul of Julius Caesar, and among other things about whether he had a soul. The conjunction of Shaw and Caesar has about it something smooth and inevitable, for this decisive reason, that Caesar is really the only great man of history to whom the Shaw theories apply. Caesar was a Shaw hero. Caesar was merciful without being in the least pitiful. His mercy was colder than justice. Caesar was a conqueror without being in any hearty sense a soldier. His courage was lonelier than fear. Caesar was a demagogue without being a democrat. In the same way, Bernard Shaw is a demagogue without being a democrat. If he had tried to prove his principle from any of the other heroes or sages of mankind, he would have found it much more difficult. Napoleon achieved more miraculous conquest, but during his most conquering epoch he was a burning boy, suicidally in love with a woman far beyond his age. Joan of Arc achieved far more instant and incredible worldly success, but Joan of Arc achieved worldly success because she believed in another world. Nelson was a figure fully as fascinating and dramatically decisive, but Nelson was romantic. Nelson was a devoted patriot and a devoted lover. Alexander was passionate. Cromwell could shed tears. Bismarck had some suburban religion. Frederick was a poet. Charlemagne was fond of children. But Julius Caesar attracted Shaw not less by his positive than by his negative enormousness. Nobody can say with certainty that Caesar cared for anything. It is unjust to call Caesar an egoist, for there is no proof that he cared even for Caesar. He may not have been either an atheist or a pessimist, but he may have been. That is exactly the rub. He may have been an ordinary, decently good man, slightly deficient in spiritual expansiveness. On the other hand, he may have been the incarnation of paganism in the sense that Christ was the incarnation of Christianity. As Christ expressed how great a man can be humble and humane, Caesar may have expressed how great a man can be frigid and flippant. According to most legends, Antichrist was to come soon after Christ. One has only to suppose that Antichrist came shortly before Christ, and Antichrist might very well be Caesar. It is, I think, no injustice to Bernard Shaw to say that he does not attempt to make his Caesar superior, except in this naked and negative sense. There is no suggestion, as there is in the Jehovah of the Old Testament, that the very cruelty of the higher being conceals some tremendous and even tortured love. Caesar is superior to other men, not because he loves more, but because he hates less. Caesar is magnanimous, not because he is warm-hearted enough to pardon, 
but because he is not warm-hearted enough to avenge. There is no suggestion anywhere in the play that he is hiding any great genial purpose or powerful tenderness towards men. In order to put this point beyond a doubt, the dramatist has introduced a soliloquy of Caesar alone with the Sphinx. There, if anywhere, he would have broken out into ultimate brotherhood or burning pity for the people. But in that scene between the Sphinx and Caesar, Caesar is as cold and lonely and as dead as the Sphinx. But whether the Shavian Caesar is a sound ideal or no, there can be little doubt that he is a very fine reality. Shaw has done nothing greater as a piece of artistic creation. If the man is a little like a statue, it is a statue by a great sculptor, a statue of the best period. If his nobility is a little negative in character, it is a negative darkness of the great dome of night, not as in some new moralities, the mere mystery of the coal hole. Indeed, this somewhat austere method of work is very suitable to Shaw when he is serious. There is nothing Gothic about his real genius. He could not build a medieval cathedral in which laughter and terror are twisted together in stone, molten by a mystical passion. He can build, by way of amusement, a Chinese pagoda, but when he is in earnest, only a Roman temple. He has a keen eye for truth, but he is one of those people who like, as the saying goes, to put down the truth in black and white. He is always girding and jeering at romantics and idealists because they will not put down the truth in black and white. But black and white are not the only two colors in the world. The modern man of science who writes down a fact in black and white is not more, but less accurate than the medieval monk who wrote it down in gold and scarlet, see green and turquoise. Nevertheless, it is a good thing that the more austere method should exist, separately, and that some men should be specially good at it. Bernard Shaw is especially good at it. He is preeminently a black and white artist. And as a study in black and white, nothing could be better than this sketch of Julius Caesar. He is not so much represented as bestriding the earth like a colossus, which is indeed a rather comic attitude for a hero to stand in, but rather walking the earth with a sort of stern levity, lightly touching the planet and yet spurning it away like a stone. He walks like a winged man who has chosen to fold his wings. There is something creepy even about his kindness. It makes the men in front of him feel as if they were made of glass. The nature of the Caesarian mercy is massively suggested. Caesar dislikes a massacre, not because it is a great sin, but because it is a small sin. It is felt that he classes it with the flirtation or a fit of the sulks, a senseless, temporary subjugation of man's permanent purpose by his passing and trivial feelings. He will plunge into slaughter for a great purpose, just as he plunges into the sea. But to be stung into such action he deems as undignified as to be tipped off the pier. In a singularly fine passage, Cleopatra, having hired assassins to stab an enemy, appeals to her wrongs as justifying her revenge, and says, If you can find one man in all Africa who says that I did wrong, I will be crucified by my own slaves. If you can find one man in all the world, replies Caesar, 
who can see that you did wrong, he will either conquer the world as I have done, or be crucified by it. That is the high watermark of this heathen sublimity, and we do not feel it inappropriate, or unlike Shaw when a few minutes afterward the hero is saluted with a blaze of swords. As usually happens in the author's works, there is even more about Julius Caesar in the preface than there is in the play. But in the preface I think the portrait is less imaginative and more fanciful. He attempts to connect his somewhat chilly type of Superman with the heroes of the old fairy tales. But Shaw should not talk about the fairy tales, for he does not feel them from the inside. As I have said, on all this side of historic and domestic traditions, Bernard Shaw is weak and deficient. He does not approach them as fairy tales, as if he were four, but as folklore, as if he were forty. And he makes a big mistake about them, which he would never have made if he had kept his birthday and hung up his stocking, and generally kept alive inside him the firelight of a home. The point is so peculiarly characteristic of Bernard Shaw, and is indeed so much of a summary of his most interesting assertion and his most interesting error, that it deserves a word by itself, though it is a word which must be remembered in connection with nearly all the other plays. His primary and defiant proposition is the Calvinistic proposition, that the elect do not earn virtue, but possess it. The goodness of a man does not consist in trying to be good, but in being good. Julius Caesar prevails over other people by possessing more virtues than they, not by having striven or suffered or bought his virtue, not because he has struggled heroically, but because he is a hero. So far Bernard Shaw is only what I have called him at the beginning. He is simply a seventeenth-century Calvinist. Caesar is not saved by works or even by faith. He is saved because he is one of the elect. Unfortunately for himself, however, Bernard Shaw went back further than the seventeenth century, and professing his opinion to be yet more antiquated, invoked the original legends of mankind. He argued that when the fairy tales gave Jack the Giant Killer a coat of darkness or a magic sword, it removed all credit from Jack in the common moral sense. He won as Caesar won only because he was superior. I will confess, in passing, to the conviction that Bernard Shaw, in the course of his whole simple and strenuous life, was never quite so near to hell as at the moment when he wrote down those words. But in this question of fairy tales, my immediate point is not how near he was to hell, but how very far off he was from fairyland. That notion about the hero with a magic sword being the superman with a magic superiority is the caprice of a pedant. No child, boy, or man ever felt it in the story of Jack the Giant Killer. Obviously the moral is all the other way. Jack's fairy sword and invisible coat are clumsy expedients for enabling him to fight at all with something which is by nature stronger. They are rough, savage substitute for psychological descriptions of special valor or unwearied patience. But no one in his five wits can doubt that the idea of Jack the Giant Killer is exactly the opposite to Shaw's idea. If it were not a tale of effort and triumph hardly earned, it would not be called Jack the Giant Killer. 
If it were a tale of the victory of natural advantages, it would be called Giant the Jack Killer. If the teller of fairy tales had merely wanted to urge that some beings are born stronger than others, he would not have fallen back on elaborate tricks or weapons and costume for conquering an ogre. He would simply have let the ogre conquer. I will not speak of my own emotions in connection with this incredibly caddish doctrine, that the strength of the strong is admirable, but not the valor of the weak. It is enough to say that I have to summon up the physical presence of Shaw, his frank gestures, kind eyes, and exquisite Irish voice, to cure me of a mere sensation of contempt. But I do not dwell upon the point for any such purpose, but merely to show how we must always be casting back to those concrete foundations with which we began. Bernard Shaw, as I have said, was never national enough to be domestic. He was never a part of his past. Hence, when he tries to interpret tradition, he comes a terrible cropper, as in this case. Bernard Shaw, I strongly suspect, began to disbelieve in Santa Claus at a discreditably early age, and by this time Santa Claus has avenged himself by taking away the key of all the prehistoric scriptures, so that a noble and honorable artist flounders about like any German professor. Here is a whole fairy tale literature which is almost exclusively devoted to the unexpected victory of the weak over the strong, and Bernard Shaw manages to make it mean the inevitable victory of the strong over the weak, which, among other things, would not make a story at all. It comes of that mistake about not keeping his birthday. A man should always be tied to his mother's apron strings. He should always have a hold on his childhood and be ready at intervals to start anew from a childish standpoint. Theologically, the thing is best expressed by saying, you must be born again. Secularly, it is best expressed by saying, you must keep your birthday. Even if you will not be born again, at least remind yourself occasionally that you were born once. Some of the incidental wit in the Caesarian drama is excellent, though it is upon the whole less spontaneous and perfect than in the previous plays. One of its jests may be mentioned in passing, not merely to draw attention to its failure, though Shaw is brilliant enough to afford many failures, but because it is the best opportunity for mentioning one of the writer's minor notions to which he obstinately adheres. He describes the ancient Briton in Caesar's train as being exactly like a modern respectable Englishman. As a joke for Christmas pantomime this would be all very well, but one expects the jokes of Bernard Shaw to have some intellectual root, however fantastic the flower. And obviously, all historic common sense is against the idea that dim druid people, whoever they were, who dwelt in our land before it was lit up by Rome or loaded with varied invasions, were a precise facsimile of the commercial society of Birmingham or Brighton. But it is a part of the Puritan in Bernard Shaw, a part of the taut and high-strung quality of his mind, that he will never admit of any of his jokes that it was only a joke. When he has been most witty, he will passionately deny his own wit. He will say something which Voltaire might envy, and then declare that he has got it all out of a blue book. And in connection with this eccentric type of self-denial, we may notice this mere detail about the ancient Briton.
Someone faintly hinted that a blue Briton, when first found by Caesar, might not be quite like Mr. Broadbent. At the touch, Shaw poured forth a torrent of theory, explaining that climate was the only thing that affected nationality, and that whatever races came into the English or Irish climate would become like the English or Irish. Now the modern theory of race is certainly a piece of stupid materialism. It is an attempt to explain the things we are sure of, France, Scotland, Rome, Japan, by means of the things we are not sure of at all, prehistoric conjectures, Celts, Mongols, and Iberians. Of course, there is a reality in race, but there is no reality in the theories of race offered by some ethnological professors. Blood perhaps is thicker than water, but brains are somewhat thicker than anything. But if there is one thing yet more thick and obscure and senseless than this theory of the omnipotence of race, it is, I think, that to which Shaw has fled for refuge from it, this doctrine of the omnipotence of climate. Climate, again, is something, but if climate were everything, Anglo-Indians would grow more and more to look like Hindus, which is far from being the case. Something in the evil spirit of our time forces people always to pretend to have found some material and mechanical explanation. Bernard Shaw has filled all his last days with affirmations about the divinity of the non-mechanical part of man, the sacred quality in creation and choice. Yet it never seems to have occurred to him that the true key to national differentiations is the key of the will and not of the environment. It never crosses the modern mind to fancy that perhaps a people is chiefly influenced by how that people has chosen to behave. If I have to choose between race and weather, I prefer race. I would rather be imprisoned and compelled by ancestors who were once alive than by mud and mists which never were. But I do not propose to be controlled by either. To me, my national history is a chain of multitudinous choices. It is neither blood nor rain that has made England, but hope, the thing that all those dead men have desired. France was not France because she was made to be by the skulls of the Celts or by the son of Gaul. France was France because she chose. I have stepped on one side from the immediate subject because this is as good an instance as any as we are likely to come across of a certain almost extraneous fault which does deface the work of Bernard Shaw. It is a fault only to be mentioned when we have made the solidity of the merits quite clear. To say that Shaw is merely making game of people is demonstrably ridiculous. At least a fairly systematic philosophy can be traced through all his jokes, and one would not insist on such a unity in all the songs of Mr. Dan Leno. I have already pointed out that the genius of Shaw is really too harsh and earnest rather than too merry and irresponsible. I shall have occasion to point out later that Shaw is, in one very serious sense, the very opposite of paradoxical. In any case, if any real student of Shaw says that Shaw is only making a fool of him, we can only say of that student it is very superfluous for anyone to make a fool. But though the dramatist's jests are always serious and generally obvious, he is really affected from time to time by a certain spirit 
of which that climate theory is a case, a spirit that can only be called one of senseless ingenuity. I suppose it is a sort of nemesis of wit, the skidding of a wheel in the height of its speed. Perhaps it is connected with the nomadic nature of his mind, that lack of roots, this remoteness from ancient instincts and traditions, is responsible for a certain bleak and heartless extravagance of statement on certain subjects which makes the author really unconvincing as well as exaggerative satires that are sagrenaux jokes that are rather silly than wild statements which even considered as lies have no symbolic relation to truth they are exaggerations of something that does not exist for instance, if a man called Christmas Day a mere hypocritical excuse for drunkenness and gluttony, that would be false, but it would have a fact hidden in it somewhere. But when Bernard Shaw says that Christmas Day is only a conspiracy kept up by poulterers and wine merchants from strictly business motives, then he says something which is not so much false as startlingly and arrestingly foolish. He might as well say that the two sexes were invented by jewellers who wanted to sell wedding rings. Or again, take the case of nationality and the unit of patriotism. If a man said that all boundaries between clans, kingdoms, or empires were nonsensical or non-existent, that would be a fallacy, but a consistent and philosophical fallacy. But when Mr. Bernard Shaw says that England matters so little that the British Empire might very well give up these islands to Germany, he has not only got hold of the sow by the wrong ear, but the wrong sow by the wrong ear, a mythical sow, a sow that is not there at all. If Britain is unreal, the British Empire must be a thousand times more unreal. It is as if one said, I do not believe that Michael Scott ever had any existence, but I am convinced, in spite of the absurd legend, that he had a shadow. As has been said already, there must be some truth in every popular impression, and the impression that Shaw, the most savagely serious man of his time, is a mere music-hall artist, must have reference to such rare outbreaks as these. As a rule, his speeches are full not only of substance, but of substances, materials like pork, mahogany, lead, and leather. There is no man whose arguments cover a more Napoleonic map of detail. It is true that he jokes, but wherever he is, he has topical jokes, one might almost say family jokes. If he talks to tailors, he can allude to the last absurdity about buttons. If he talks to the soldiers, he can see the exquisite and exact humor of the last gun carriage. But when all his powerful practicality is allowed, there does run through him this erratic levity, an explosion of ineptitude. It is a queer quality in literature. It is a sort of cold extravagance, and it has made him all his enemies. End of section 9. End of chapter 5.